Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is up, Z-Pack? It's your boy, ZDogMD. I am fired up today because this is going to be the first in hopefully a series of many continuing medical education uh, lectures. We all, dude, we all know how boring CME is or continuing education credits if, you know, whatever your specialty calls it. It's like, well, uh, okay, item three, diagnosis, uh, item four. We're going to try to make it fun and engaging. You watch a Facebook Live video a couple days later. I'm going to repost the video with some disclosure material and a link to Physician Weekly's Learning Management System website. There are partners. They will have there, you log in, you set up an account. Supporters who've subscribed to Facebook uh, for me for $4.99 a month get access to this on a private post section. And the way it works is for supporters, we'll do the show now for everyone because this is crucial information about measles we're gonna talk about today that matters for everyone. Part of our mission here at ZDog Industries is to make sure we educate and entertain not just patients, but really the people who are caring for them. Because if you teach a teacher, then you can have a huge impact. So I would never put this behind a paywall, the teaching. What we are putting just for subscribers and uh, people who uh, support the show is the ability to get actual credits, uh, continuing education credits. And that's anybody who can take ANCC or ACCME certified credit. That includes all doctors, all nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs at the minimum, and probably your specialty, although people like pharmacists have very specific requirements that may not be covered by this. So talk to your own uh, board and see if you're covered. And if you're a supporter, in a couple days, we'll put out instructions on how you can log in, take a couple test and a couple question post test and get credit for what I'm about to talk about. All right, that housekeeping out of the way, I put a link on how you can become a sc- subscriber. By the way, think about that. It's like the cheapest CME you're gonna get that's short of free. And we have fun for subscribers. All right, that housekeeping out of the way, here's the deal. Measles is back, all right, except it's not all right. Because of increasing anti-vaccine thinking, uh, particularly in certain hotspots, for example, the Orthodox Jewish community on the East Coast, and basically anything on the West Coast, so Oregon, Washington, California, what we're starting to see are fairly emergent outbreaks, 30, 31 cases near Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, Washington, 
They've actually declared a, the governor's declared a state of emergency about resurgent measles. This was a disease that was practically wiped out in the United States. Why does it matter that it's coming back? Isn't it just a normal, natural part of childhood? After all, in the old days, 90% of Americans contracted measles before they became an adult. So pretty much everyone got it, with a small exception. And so why are we worried about it? Why are we treating it like it's Ebola or something serious? Uh, because it is. Measles in the pre-vaccine era killed, listen to me carefully now, killed 2.6 million people, most of them children under five. This is of plague proportions in the old days. Now, why does it not, and today, worldwide, it kills roughly 110,000 people, we think, in 2017. Again, the data is kind of tough because the places that are most hard hit are the places that vaccinate least in the developing world. Uh, you know, you have parts of India, Pakistan, Nigeria, so Africa, Asia. These are places that are still catching up with uh, uh, vaccination regimens. Whereas in the West, we had mostly eradicated it because of the measles, mumps, rubella combination vaccination, two shots that were given. And the way that this worked was a live attenuated virus, in other words, a virus that is still alive and can replicate and trigger an immune response, but does not cause the symptoms or complications of measles, is given in an injection. And what they found is it after the first injection, you know, maybe like 85, 90 people, percent of people were immune, but they were missing a few. So the second booster brought it up to close to 99% would then have long-term, practically lifetime immunity. Again, there's a percentage of people who don't, and they are still at risk for getting something we call modified measles, which is an attenuated form of measles if they're exposed to measles. We're gonna talk about that in the course of this. In this lecture, what I wanna talk about is, <clears throat> first of all, the prevention aspect, right? We'll wrap back to that. I wanna talk about recognizing measles, the different forms that measles can take, including modified measles, atypical measles, severe measles in immunocompromised patients. We're gonna talk about how do you diagnose it, first of all, clinically, by looking at rash and fever and symptoms, something called coplex spots, which are very specific but not very sensitive for measles. So we're gonna talk about that. And again, why, are, why do I even have to talk about this? Because we've never seen measles, the younger generation. It was practically eradicated. Older docs have seen it, younger docs have not, and they can miss it. And it is one of the most contagious diseases known to humans. 90% of unimmunized people exposed to a patient with measles will get infected. That the measles virus is transmitted by airborne coughing, by obviously close contact fluids, but in the air it can remain in a room airborne for two hours after the patient has coughed in that room. You can imagine how the outbreaks we've seen in Disneyland and other places could have become more than an outbreak, could have become an epidemic if people weren't vaccinated. Why do we even have outbreaks now? Because there is a failure of what we call community immunity in places like Oregon, say, or Washington State, because the rate of vaccination is only 70 to 80% because of this anti-vaccine sentiment, thinking these uh, vaccines cause autism, which they don't. So 
they save lives. And you're gonna see why measles is so horrible. I, part of my goal here is to get you angry at professional anti-vaccine uh, activists who are harming children with their lies online, okay? So back to this herd immunity, I call it community immunity. You need about 94% vaccination in a community to prevent widespread outbreaks because that's the critical mass to keep the virus from replicating around in a tribe of people. Well, in some cases, we're down to 70%, right? Or, 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 or 70 to 80%. And so what happens is somebody gets infected, possibly from somebody coming from abroad where it's more prevalent, where measles is still, you know, there's still a lot of cases uh, yearly um, because of poor vaccination. And they come here and then it starts to break out in unvaccinated communities. A good example is Orthodox Jewish communities in on the East Coast. I was talking to Paul Offit about this. This is a big problem over there. And on the West Coast, we're talking about this stuff. <clears throat> so the the it's a highly contagious disease. It's easy to spread and it's preventable with the two shot series of measles vaccine as part of MMR, okay? So let's say now we have failed this prevention community immunity is not there, and you are looking to diagnose this in somebody, so you're concerned. What are you looking for in terms of measles? And let's go through this very carefully because this is something that, again, we just don't see. It can mimic other diseases, and if you miss it, it's so contagious that it can spread. Here's the thing. There are children younger than 12 months old who you know, or, or even six months and younger who cannot be vaccinated, who are relying on maternal immunity through antibodies that wane over time, and they are at risk. There are people who are immunocompromised who uh, cannot be vaccinated or who are at risk, who are at risk, and they can't, so you cannot protect them. How do you protect them? With community immunity from a mass vaccination campaign where everybody who can be vaccinated is vaccinated on time. Okay, I'm gonna emphasize that again. This is entirely preventable to keep our most vulnerable patients safe. Now let's say we fail this because we have why a ton of videos we've done on why, all right? Let's talk about measles itself. So we've talked about how contagious it is and actually the period of contagiousness is quite long. So it can be any time from five days before you see a rash and you could be asymptomatic, have no symptoms at all to up to four days after the rash appears and you start to get better. So this is particularly dangerous because you can have no symptoms and be contagious or you can have what they call a prodrome. So the measles virus tends in typical hosts to evolve in this series. There's an incubation period and that can be anywhere from six to 21 days. Now, in people who've been vaccinated but didn't develop full immunity, or people who were exposed to measles as a child, or little young kids who just have maternal antibodies to protect them and they haven't been vaccinated yet, you can get something called modified measles, where it's an attenuated measles where the incubation period can last much longer. So it can start, you know, a 17-day minimum incubation period. So it, it, it's harder to diagnose in those patients, which is yet another reason that we need just full vaccination, so there's as few susceptible individuals as possible. So that being said, you have this six to 21 day, sort of the median's around 13 days, incubation period. And that's when the virus is entered, and it enters through the mucosa, through the eyes, through the nasal mucosa, through the respiratory tract, um, through those sort of, you know, uh, mucous membranes, 
and starts replicating in the epithelial, it gets into the endothelial cells, it gets into the reticuloendothelial system, the lymph nodes, and starts crazy replicating. During this period, you have something called viremia. So the virus is really spreading. It can spread through the blood and disseminate everywhere. At this point, after this incubation period, you start to get what they call a prodrome. Prodrome is a fancy way of saying, a get ready, stuff's about, I can't curse on CMEs. Stuff's about to get real. They told me I can't, I, which ma makes me want to, right guys? You're like, hey Z-Dog, don't say the S word. I'm like, oh yeah, here it is. No, I, I, I can't, I'm trying to keep it real. Uh, so the prodrome usually lasts around two to four days. And again, this is modified in, in certain situations, but it's typically right, and it can last as long as eight days. What it really is defined by is fever malaise, feeling like, right? Like I look typically, cause I just got off a bike ride with my kids. Cause today's screen-free Sunday where we ditch our phones. But I told them, look, I just have to do one thing with my phone. I'm gonna talk to the Z-Pack. It's kind of urgent cause measles is a thing. And they're like, all right, we're gonna sit in the hot tub. You're gonna teach your thing. And don't you dare go in and start answering comments today. You do it tomorrow. So if you don't see me online, that's why. Um, the prodrome, the malaise, fever, anorexia, so feeling like you don't want to eat. And in kids, this is kind of very easy to recognize. Sometimes it's not easy to recognize. The fever is pretty easy, but the other stuff, they're just being punky. And then it's followed by the three C's. Conjunctivitis, which is a fancy way of saying redness of the eyes. Coryza, which is the fancy way of saying snotty runny nose, inflamed mucous membranes, right? And cough, and it's typically a dry cough. And so this is the prodrome, and it's very non-specific. I mean, a, a, a flu can do this, rhinovirus cold can do this, parainfluenza can do this. There's a ton of things in the differential diagnosis right here that can look like this. Any sort of viral or bacterial infection can look like this. So it's very vague, but during this time, you can be highly contagious. So it's a problem. So your index of suspicion has to be high in communities where maybe vaccination isn't uh, prevalent, like any rich, affluent, overeducated community where they suffer from something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger effect means you know a little, very little about something, so much so that you don't have the capacity to understand how little you know, and you overestimate your knowledge. So hyper-educated, you know, well-intentioned parents feel like they know everything about immunology because they read a couple articles on Google. And they're generally smart people and they know stuff about other stuff, but mm -mm, they don't know what they don't know. Whereas doctors are always equivocating. Oh, I don't know, you know, it may be measles, it may be something else. You know, we, we're not always sure. They can say that because they know enough to know that they don't know everything. They have metacognition, okay? So your index of suspicion should be high in communities where you're worried about vaccination levels being low, or there's a travel history to an endemic area, parts of Asia, parts of Africa, developing world, etc. Okay, then, after, so the prodrome, this conjunctivitis, one thing I should say, it could lead to a lot of tearing, photophobia, which is a fancy way of saying your light bothers your eyes. Um, these are kind of, sort of, uh, they go with the conjunctivitis. Um, the respiratory symptoms, are due to actual viral infection of the respiratory tract. So it's direct viral toxicity. Um, and there's often fever during this time in the prodrome. And that fever can reach 40 degrees Celsius. I mean, it can be a very, very, very high fever. Um, and there's different patterns of fever, but you know, the bottom line to know is that this is the sort of prodrome. Now, what is the prodrome leading to? 
the next phase of the disease, which is the exanthem. Let me unpack that word for a second. So exanthem is a fancy way of saying rash on the skin. <laughs> Ex meaning outside, xanthem, I don't know what it means. Who cares, right? The bottom line is it's a rash on the outside. Now contrast that with another thing that becomes relevant here, which is enanthem. Enanthem is a rash on the mucus or lesions on the mucous membranes, the inside, like this, okay? So and it's interesting because prior to the exanthem, the rash of measles that everybody knows about, which we'll talk about, you get, you can get 48 hours prior to that, roughly, you can get an enanthem. And it turns out this is important because the type of lesion you see, typically on the mucous membrane, sometimes you, of the mouth, the buccal mucosa, right next to these molars, right here, it's right here, is the classic place, but you can see it on the hard palate, on the other mucous membranes in the mouth and in girls on the labia, because those are also mucous membranes. And you can get this lesion called a coplic spot. And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's K-O-P-L-I-K, because I've never diagnosed one directly, because we don't see measles, because we thought we'd gotten rid of it. So a coplic spot turns out to be very specific for measles. If you see one classically, it used to be considered pathognomonic. That's a fancy way of saying, if you see it, it pretty much means measles. So it's very specific for measles. You don't see it in a lot of other things. There are other things that kind of look like it, but not quite. Now let me show you a picture of this so you can see for yourself. Here we go. Okay, bear with me. This is the CDC website, and here is a Coplic spot. Now, it's very hard to see. Do you see that white there on a red background? The way that it's described is a erythematous background, that's the red, and these little white grains of sand. And they can be white, they can be bluish, they can be gray, they can be different colors other than white. They don't necessarily have to look like that. But the key thing is they're on a red background. So there are other little white things and yellow things you can get in your mouth. But if you see it with fever and the prodrome symptoms on a red background, these little white you know, millimeter dots, and sometimes they can get confluent. So you have like a red background and a bunch of these little grains of rice, these little white bits. Those are coplic spots. Very, very high suspicion in the right setting of measles. All right? So it can help. There's data that shows they looked at this. Um, and what they, what they saw was if you combine that with the other findings of like fever and, and runny nose and the three C's of cough and coryza and conjunctivitis, your diagnostic accuracy for measles is much higher. Why does it matter? Because you want to, in the developed world, you want to quarantine that person. You want to put them in respiratory isolation uh, and keep other people out of the room they've been in. Even if they leave the room, you want to stay out of that room for hours um, because of how contagious measles is. And then you want to watch them for complications and you want to treat them a certain way, which we're going to talk about. All right. After the enanthem, the coplic spot, it doesn't always occur. So it's specific for measles generally, but it's not very sensitive. So if you're relying on coplic spots, you're going to miss the diagnosis because a lot of people just don't have it or you're just not good enough to see it because it's, it's, it can be very subtle. So the next phase is the exanthem, the rash. Now the rash is, I'm going to pull it up here, is a fairly, it's not 
classic in the sense that there are a lot of viral illnesses, drug eruptions, other things that can look like this. And when we talk about full differential diagnosis, we'll get into some of that. Um, but what's interesting about typical measles is that it starts often on the face and the neck and it spreads outward. So it goes in what they call, for the, for the nerds, a craniocaudal sort of spread. So from cranium from head down to caudum, which is tail. So it goes this way. And, it's, and it ends up on the trunk and so on. So that's kind of the classic spread of, of the measles rash. It's a macular papular rash, which means there's sort of these flat red lesions that blanch initially. So blanching means you squeeze on them with your finger and they turn white and then they refill with red. Now, later, as the rash evolves, they stop blanching. And often they become light brown, except in African-Americans, people with different skin tones, it can look different. So that's important, right? And then it starts to slough off and, and, and resolves in the reverse distribution. So if it started, it, 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 the same way it appeared actually. So if it starts on the face and it spreads this way, it resolves starting on the face and spreads out sequentially. Um, let me show you some images of, of what those measles rashes look like, okay, hang on. All right, so here's the classic maculopapular facial rash. Here's a truncal rash where, you know, it's very, very, subtle, not subtle, it, you know, it's very uh, uh, sort of classic, but other things can look like it. For example, take a look at chicken pox over here. You know, so some things can mimic it, although you can kind of tell the difference with the chicken pox lesions, lesions, they're more raised, they tend to be much more itchy, but again, there can be overlap. And in fact, here's probably a good time to talk about the other things that can fake Measles, because this rash, you think, oh yeah, I nailed it, it's measles. Well, not so fast, Ace. So here are the things, okay? And I, I have to look at this list because there's so many of them. So first of all, in the prodrome, I mean, it could be anything, like any respiratory virus, adenovirus, RSV, particularly the time of year in the winter. Um, but typically the fever in the measles prodrome can be more pronounced, but it's not always the case. Um, the, uh, you know, and again, you'd have to, when we talk about diagnosis, you'll see how to differentiate. Uh, the viral causes of rash in kids, I mean, varicella, which is chicken pox, roseola, which is herpes virus six, um, parvovirus B19, the classic slap, ow, God, don't let me do that again. The slap cheek syndrome uh, that can cause anemia and things like that, that, that can cause a rash like this enterovirus, toxic shock syndrome, streptococcal infections, you know, scarlet fever. There's a lot of things, including drug eruptions. So certain antibiotics can cause this kind of rash and a fever. So it starts to look similar. Meningococcus, so men, uh, you know, a, a meningococcal bacterial infection, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, mono, mycoplasma pneumonia, vasculitis. Um, you know, Heinrich, Strohnlein, Purpura, all these different things, including Kawasaki disease. All right, you can look this stuff up. What's important is there's other stuff that causes it. How do you differentiate it? Through the diagnostic regimen we're gonna talk about. Now let's get back. We talked about the, the rash. Now that rash can start about two to four days after the onset of fever, and then it takes some days to kind of unwind and then clinical improvement really starts about two days after it starts. So the rash appears, then 48 hours, it's a little better. Then three to four days, the rash is dark and brown, especially in Caucasians, not so much in African-Americans, and it begins to fade and then it can desquamate, meaning it can start to peel. 
like a sunburn in the more severe areas. So typically you're talking six to seven days and fading in the order that it appeared. So going centrifugally out. All right, so after the rash phase, the next phase is recovery and the building of immunity to the disease. So you can have a cough for up to one to two weeks after measles, but that fever should start to go away. You know, once that rash appears in 48 hours, the fever should start to go away. If you're still having fever, you know, several days after that rash, you should start thinking about complications that might be arising, secondary infections, etc. So in the recovery phase, um, you start to clear the virus, produce antibodies to the virus, IgM, IgG, immunoglobins start to be made, um, and you start to get better. Now, here's the rub. This is why measles is such a nasty, 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 nasty disease and anti-vaxxers need to be stopped. And parents on the fence need to be educated about how bad this disease is. This is not a natural disease of childhood. You don't go have a measles party. And the reason is measles suppresses the very immune system that fights it. It suppresses T-cell mediated and cellular immunity. Potentially, they don't exactly know how, but they've noticed T-cell deficiencies and, and, and damage to the cellular mediated, mediated immune system for weeks to months to sometimes years after the infection. Why does this matter? Because that's when your little kid or your adult can get a secondary pneumonia, bacterial or viral pneumonia, or another type of infection. And, and so by suppressing the immune system, you end up setting yourself up for some of the potentially deadly complications of measles. And those complications include severe diarrhea, which in the developing world can be a cause of death because you get malnutrition, dehydration, and death. Less so in the US. But the big cause of death is respiratory infection. So secondary bacterial and viral pneumonia, direct uh, cellular damage, giant cell pneumonia from the measles itself. And again, this effect on the immune system that can last for some time after the initial infection. That's why measles is so particularly nasty, you guys. So let's talk about some variants, like what can be some things that'll throw us for a loop in diagnosing this. And one of them is modified measles. Modified measles I'm gonna read this specifically because I want you to have no doubt about what this is. Modified measles is an attenuated infection that occurs in patients with pre-existing measles immunity, either through getting infected in the wild or through vaccination. And it's similar to classic measles, except the manifestations are generally milder and the incubation period is longer. So 17 to 21 days. It's a longer incubation period than classic measles. Now, individuals with modified measles are not highly contagious, but they are still contagious. So again, this is another reason why mass community vaccination works because you decrease the amount of contagiousness even if someone does get infected, all right? Very important. So how can that happen? Well, you can be vaccinated and not really have a full response. And again, we said that 1% of people can have, even after the two series, or maybe they just got one and didn't get revaccinated, or maybe they got, you know, they were exposed to measles as a child and it didn't create lifelong uh, immunity and they never got MMR because really it's only healthcare workers who tend to get revaccinated and get titers checked because they need to for their jobs. Um, 
and sometimes little kids who have maternal antibodies and they wane, and they wane away and so they have partial immunity and so they can get this modified measles. Okay, so recognize modified measles and uh, understand that it may not look as severe as the standard measles. Sometimes you don't even get a rash, all right? Um, which is why our index of suspicion has to be high, particularly in affected communities with travel histories, things like that, because you want to test for it and we'll talk about that. So there's something called, that's very rare now, that's called atypical measles. Atypical measles is fascinating because it happened typically in patients who were immunized between 1963 and 1967 with an early killed version of the vaccine. So in other words, it was just inactivated viral antigen. Now we use a live attenuated vaccine. Why? Because the inactivated viral antigen in those early formulations led to a kind of immunity where the body made antibodies against parts of measles, but it wasn't enough to stop the disease from progressing much. It was enough to stop it from being contagious. So in other words, you couldn't spread it once you got infected. But what would happen is you would make antibodies to these particles, but they would clump, the theory is, in these immune complexes, which would deposit and cause severe vasculitis and, and uh, uh, you know pneumonia and pretty bad disease. Now, the reason I mention atypical uh, measles is that again, it's, it's exceedingly rare. But if you see a patient who maybe got you know that vaccine between sixty three and sixty seven. It's, it can be on the radar. It's just going to be really unusual. And, you know, you get a dry cough, pleuritic chest pain, bad pneumonitis. The chest x-ray could show all these nodules and, you know, hyalur uh, lymph nodes and this kind of thing. And it usually results in pretty severe illness. A lot of patients get this respiratory distress type syndrome. They develop peripheral edema, hepatosplenomegaly, and it's presumably due to this immune response. Um, and, you know, liver function tests are abnormal, et cetera. So again, you're not going to likely see this, but it's something to think about um, just academically at least. And there may be, who knows, there may be one Z-packer who diagnoses a case in an outbreak zone of somebody who gets this and saves a life by recognizing it and managing it aggressively. Okay, so what do you see uh, uh, on the, and it's interesting because those atypical patients don't transmit the virus, which is, Again, probably a function of their partial immunity due to the vaccination. All right, what do you see on lab tests? What lab tests are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna do your standard CBC, Chem 7, those kind of things, and this is what you'd see on those. Thrombocytopenia, so low platelets, usually often a low white count, slightly low white count, suppressed white count, um, so, so-called leukopenia. You, you can see T-cell cytopenia, so low T-cell count if you're looking for that. Um, during measles infection. The chest x-ray, you can sometimes see interstitial uh, pneumonitis, so it's very non-specific inf infl you know, inflammation. Um, if you biopsy lymph nodes, you might see these giant cells, which kind of are something you see with measles, where a bunch of cell nuclei, a bunch of cells kind of merge, and you have a bunch of nuclei in this big giant cell. And so it's presumed to be a viral effect, uh, a cytotoxic viral effect. Um, so if you, you know, if you actually do a biopsy, you might see those things. Uh, and the same goes with the conjunctiva and the nasopharynx and those kind of things. You guys want to see a, uh, let me show you what these giant cells look like just because it's fun. Here you go. This is from, this courtesy of Up to Date. So here, here are sort of typical cells. And here is a giant cell. All the nuclei are crammed up in the center in this one big cell. See that? The arrow helps, doesn't it? See that? And pathologists tell me where I'm wrong, but I see 
three little doohickeys there, which I presume. Let's see. Medium power view of a lung biopsy from a patient with measles. Pneumonia shows a nodular pattern with acute and chronic inflammation, areas of necrosis. Multinucleated giant cells with inclusions are shown. There it is. And there's the, the inflammation in the lung. All right. I'm going to stop pretending to be a pathologist and keep going here. So on the laboratory uh, uh, findings, we've kind of gone through that. Now, so the question is, we'll talk about diagnosis in a second, because I want to first talk about, actually, no, let's talk about diagnosis. I want to talk about diagnosis, then we'll talk about complications. So the way you diagnose this, it depends on, first of all, there's the clinical exam, which we just talked about. So your index of suspicion has to be high. Then you have to go, am I in an area that has a high prevalence of measles? For example, parts of Africa, Asia, developing world. In which case, the WHO says, you know what? You should probably just do a serum IgM for measles. In other words, see if the body is uh, responding with an acute phase IgM uh, uh, antibody response to measles, because it should. Now, often there, there can be false negatives and false positives, but if you're already in an outbreak epidemic zone where it's all over the place anyways, and you see the kind of symptoms of it and the rash and this and that, that's probably all you need because you're like, well, it's measles. And, 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 and it's not like there's already a big epidemic. Okay, so it, that's, the, I think, the rationale for you can just do that test. Now, if you're somewhere like the U.S. and the prevalence is quite low, the first thing you do is hit the local uh, public health authorities. Your ID guy, the public health um, um, service in your city or CDC, whoever you want to call, call an authority because they'll tell you what the best specimen is. Because typically they'll say you want three specimens. You want some kind of nasopharyngeal uh, uh, swab, you want a serum test for the IgM, and a throat nasopharyngeal for a viral culture, and a urine sample for a viral culture. So you get three. So two different viral culture sites, because the culture is kind of hard to do, and the IgM. The other thing you can do, if it's available, and it's not this massive send out, is a reverse transcriptase PCR. So we've talked, we've had guests on the show talking about point of care PCR. This is a great example. You could probably do a quick PCR once they develop it out right there on the spot and say, yeah, this is measles because it's so, you know, uh, sensitive and specific PCR. So PCR is another, it's useful when it's available. Um, it may not be available. The other thing you can do is you can start and get a set of IgG antibodies. Now, what do I mean by this? Here's how the immune response typically works on the humoral side, on the antibody side. You start with this IgM, just acutely against measles, and IgG, which is the longer term immunity, starts building, and it will generally go up while you're convalescing, and then you get this kind of lifelong immunity. So what you can do is you can measure IgG at the beginning of the illness, when you first see the patient, and at the end. And that will help confirm because you go, oh, it went up by fourfold, which I think is their diagnostic uh, criteria. Let me just confirm that uh, because we, I don't want to lie to you. Um, but typically, yeah, what will happen is a fourfold increase in anti-measles antibody is indicative of infection. So that's another way of just confirming, yeah, this is what it is, okay? So those are the kind of ways you can typically test for it uh, and again, that IgM serology is kind of uh, key. So going back to now complications. So you've diagnosed it. Now, what are you worried about? This is another reason why measles is such a pain in the butt and why 
we really, really, really have to take it deadly serious, okay? Is the complications, sorry, I'm just trying to keep an eye on the clock here. Uh, let me turn up, turn up the light on this if I can. I can't, too bad. Uh, the complications, first of all, 30% of measles cases have complications. And some of those can be severe. In pregnant women, it's a huge rate of complications, both for the mother and the unborn child. But let's say it's 30% of complications for any measles case. Diarrhea is the most common. And it can be debilitating in the developing world. Here we can kind of manage it, but it can be a serious problem. Most of the deaths are due to respiratory infections or encephalitis. And that's swelling of the brain. Let's talk about that in a second. Ear infections, otitis media, occur in about five to 10% of cases, patients, and it's, not, it's more common in young people. And that makes sense because you're all swollen and inflamed in the mucous membranes, you have blockage, and you end up with ear infections. Maybe there's a direct viral effect. I don't know the answer to that. So it turns out these complications are more common in the developing world where a case fatality rate is somewhere between four and 10%. So between four and 10% of patients who are diagnosed with measles in the developing world die. This is still a huge problem, um, which is why they would love to have the vaccines that we're too snotty to give our kids because we think we know better because we're affected with the Dunning-Kruger effect. And we're listening to celebrities like Jenny McCarthy instead of vaccine scientists like Paul Offit. Um, and we've forgotten collectively how terrible these diseases are. And now there are 31 cases near Portland of this disease that has a, a, a complication rate of 30% and used to kill 2.6 million people in the old days. I'm not supposed to get so riled up for CME, but I still do. All right, I hate anti-vaxxers. Um, okay, so one of the big problems is secondary infection. So measles leads to systemic immune suppression. You end up with these severe secondary infections whether it's diarrhea, whether it's um, uh, pneumonia. We talked about the direct uh, T-cell suppressive effect as well as this effect on other uh, uh, cell-mediated immunity. Uh, it's actually interesting because in HIV-positive patients, there's actually suppression of viral replication of HIV, they think, by some effect of the measles virus. It's really quite fascinating, except we just don't want to see it. Um, and so this measles immunity associated immune suppression may be responsible for the long-term complications that we see up to three years after infection is the sort of outer limit of that immune suppression. So we talked about diarrhea, about 8% of patients. Um, you can get these stomatitis, these sores that make it difficult to absorb and can lead to reduced nutritional status, mostly in kids. Pneumonia, and that's the most common cause of death in people younger than five and older than 20. Um, a lot of times it's just your state, like, so they looked in South Africa, 85% of the cases of death were due to pneumonia, due to either viral or bacterial infection. So they looked at 182 cases of measles associated pneumonia. It was strep pneumo, strep pyogenes, H flu, you know, your standard actors. Um, so it's probably because your immune system suppressed, there's bronchiectasis, damage to the lungs from inflammation, secondary infection. That's how people die, most commonly, of measles. There are other ways. It's a great, fun virus to kill people. Little kids are most vulnerable. And what are we doing? We're fooling around with not vaccinating our kids. Just stop it. Vaccinate your kids. If you're a muggle watching this, you're a parent on the fence, this is a reason to vaccinate your kids without screwing around, all right? Um, encephalitis, 
one in a thousand cases of measles get brain swelling. And this is not a joke. So it usually happens a few days after the rash, typically about day five, and you start getting this fever again. So if you get a, another fever, you should start thinking there's a complication here. This isn't just straight measles because the fever should be gone by now, typically. So fever, headache, vomiting, stiff neck, you know, it hurts when you bend the neck, they're drowsy, they're somnolent, having seizures, going into a coma, those are signs of acute measles encephalitis. And it can also occur without a rash. So you have, your index of suspicion has to be high. If you look at the CSF, if you do a lumbar puncture, which you're gonna do in these, in these kids um, or adults, you're gonna see pleocytosis, some, a lot of lymphocytes, um, some elevated protein, it almost looks like a viral meningitis. Uh, and a normal glucose because it's not, you know, bacterial meningitis where it's eating up all the glucose. 25% um, of children who get a measles encephalitis will go on to have bad sequelae, whether it's, you know, mental delay, a, a physical um, um, disability, etc. This is not a joke. And in 15% of people with encephalitis, it will rapidly progress to death. Vaccinate your kids! God, ah, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and professional anti-vaxxers spreading these lies. I understand why parents are scared. Vaccinate your kids. All right, it gets worse. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis is another dreaded complication. Remember we talked about Guillain-Barre disease in a previous show can often associated with infection, with flu, can sometimes be associated with vaccination. It's an immune response. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, ADEM, occurs in one in a thousand cases of measles. It is also felt to be a post-infectious immune response, and it can be caused by other things. But in the case of measles, again, fever, headache, neck stiffness, seizures, mental status changes, somnolence, ataxia, myoclonus, some signs of myelitis like paraplegia, quadriplegia, sensory loss, bladder and bowel control loss. So again, not good. It's associated with a 10 to 20% death rate, mortality. Uh, and it's higher than if you get uh, this same syndrome from another infection or another cause. Okay, so all that being said, again, residual neurologic abnormalities are common, including behavior disorders, mental retardation, epilepsy. All right, now here's the worst. Are you ready? It's rare, but it happens. Subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. What is that? SSPE, we'll call it. It's a fatal progressive neurodegenerative disorder that happens seven to 10 years after measles. The rate of this disease is difficult to calculate because we've suppressed measles. But one of the estimates says that if you were infected before 12 months of age, which is a risk factor to get this, seven to 10 years later, about 1,640 out of every million infections will develop this. So it's not trivial, it's low, but it's not trivial. What is it? Basically a four-stage debilita debilitating, ultimately fatal neurodegenerative disorder, okay? So it starts with just personality changes, lethargy, difficult in school, you know, you're having trouble in school, strange behavior, basically me on a good day. Uh, and that can last weeks to years. Then, and think how hard this is to diagnose. Stage two, myoclonus, dementia, sensory and motor disease, 
Then you have stage three and four, which is further deterioration, autonomic dysfunction, vegetative state, stage four, death. How do you diagnose that? It's tough, but serum anti-measles antibody concentration is up. So there's a thought that there's residual measles somewhere triggering this antibody response or some other immune trigger. And uh, CSF shows that you have high protein and detectable anti-measles antibody in the CSF. That's why we think it's related to measles directly. Very, very, very bad. Okay, so this is all very depressing and yet totally preventable. If everybody were vaccinated, there'd be enough community immunity. It'd be like smallpox. We would eradicate it. We were close to doing that until our friend Jenny McCarthy and Andrew Wakefield committed fraud and put us in a situation now where people are questioning everything they thought they knew about vaccines. And it is just horrible. Okay, let's keep going. Who is at risk for complications in, in, in the worst situation? Let me just check on the time here. Okay. Oh, good. We're going to get an hour of CME out of this because it's going to go for an hour. So this is great. So when, when supporters click through in a couple days, when I set up the link, you'll be able to get an hour of continuing education credit for this hour long show. And I'll take some comments uh, towards the end. All right because I want to get through this material because it's important. So immunocompromised, uh, so okay, immunocompromised patients. So people with uh, uh, immunocompromised, whether they have immune disorders, HIV, et cetera, very young, um, can get severe measles. And that can include giant cell pneumonia. Remember I showed you that little picture of the, of the funky cells in the, in the uh, lung? Imagine that everywhere, pneumonia, potentially death. Um, and sometimes you don't even get a rash in immune compromised patients. So it can, it can fool you. You may even need a lung biopsy to make the diagnosis. Um, measles inclusion body encephalitis is another crazy complication you can get with, you know, immune compromised people, kids with HIV. Um, and the serology, in other words, doing that IgM may not be useful in patients um, who have immune compromised because they don't make antibodies. So what you may have to do there is another approach like, uh, you know, PCR, tissue biopsy, looking for those giant cells, things like that, Cult, you know, viral culture. Um, pregnant women. So it turns out 55, so they looked at 55 pregnant women with measles in Namibia. Measles related complications were diarrhea in 60%, 40% got pneumonia, 5% got encephalitis. That's a lot, you guys, like, that's serious. And of the 42 pregnancies that they followed to conclusion, 60% had at least one adverse maternal, fetal, or neonatal outcome. And 12% of those pregnant women died. Not a joke. And here's the thing. You cannot immunize a pregnant woman with MMR because it's a live attenuated virus, to my knowledge. I have to double check that. Um, so that being said, you want community immunity. You want them immunized prior to pregnancy. You want everybody just immunized. All right. Um, so we talked about uh, the uh, diagnostic algorithms. We talked about some of the differential diagnosis. We talked, uh, now we're gonna talk about treatment. All right, how do you treat measles? There is no specific treatment for measles. There is supportive care. So it's a viral syndrome. There's some thought about giving ribavirin, which is an antiviral to people with immune compromise or very young, very sick uh, kids. 
Um, you can, you know, talk to your infectious disease fellow, talk to your public health department about that. The measles virus is susceptible to it in vitro. We don't know what's going on in vivo because the clinical data is hardly anything. And in one trial, they looked at like 100 kids with measles. They got supportive care uh, with or without ribavirin. And those that got the ribavirin had a slightly shorter duration of fever and symptoms. Uh, and then with, with adults with bad pneumonitis from measles, they got IV ribavirin. There were only five patients and they recovered, whereas the patient uh, treated later, uh, too late, did not recover. I mean, again, we have no, it, it doesn't say much. These are not great data. So that being all said, what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you give supportive care. You need an isolation room and it's airborne um, uh, isolation. So they, they say in an inpatient setting, airborne transmission precautions are indicated for four days after the onset of the rash in an otherwise healthy patient and for the duration of illness in immo immunocompromised patients because they can spread it constantly. Susceptible individuals should not enter the room of patients with suspected or confirmed measles. Exposed susceptible individuals should be excluded from work so you're, you don't have antibodies, you're not uh, vaccinated, for, for, from day five through 21 of the exposure. If the case is confirmed, even those who were vaccinated within 72 hours after the fact should be excluded. Um, and in the outpatient setting, patients with the febrile rash should be escorted to a separate waiting area. They should be placed immediately in a private room, preferably at negative pressure um, relative to the other patient care areas. Everyone should wear masks and respirators, masks for patients, so that they're not putting droplets everywhere and respirators for staff to filter airborne particles regardless of immunity status because immunity can fail. We talked about modified measles. If not admitted, the patient should be told to remain in isolation at home through four days after the rash starts. Then they're gonna be less contagious. Measles virus can remain suspended in air for up to two hours. And so if you have a room, you shouldn't use it for two hours after the patient's departure. Okay, so this is important, actionable stuff for doctors, nurses, healthcare providers in institutions. Now, one thing I failed to mention, the WHO recommends everybody, including in the US, every patient with measles gets doses of vitamin A. And you can look up those doses. It's like for infants less than six months, it's 50,000 IUs. From six to 11 months, it's 100,000 international units. And children greater than 12, it's 200,000 international units. Why? Because another complication of measles that I failed to mention earlier, a dreaded complication is blindness, keratitis, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, diseases of the eye that are associated with the measles infection can cause blindness. It is a big cause of blindness in the developing world. You can attenuate the effects by giving vitamin A, but you may not eliminate them. So again, blindness, add it to the list of terrible things that this virus has done to scourge mankind for millennia until we practically eradicated it and will again, ZPAC, eradicate it. So um, definitely the vitamin A, we talked about the ribavirin, the supportive care, Let's just summarize. Then we're gonna read some comments. Highly contagious disease, preventable with vaccine, fever, malaise, cough, coryza, conjunctivitis, ananthem, coplic spots, rash, exanthem, starts in the face, goes out, unless you have the very rare atypical measles where it actually starts out here and moves in, but you're never gonna see that. So worry about it less, but we did talk about it. 
You have an incubation period, six to 21 days. You have a prodrome period, two to four days, fever, malaise, anorexia, and all that red, you know, the C's, the cough, coryza, conjunctivitis, the coplic spots. Then you have the rash that usually resolves in five to six days and the recovery period of a couple weeks where you're coughing. If you start getting fever again, you could have some of these complications, encephalitis, pneumonia, diarrhea, blindness, long-term complication of uh, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is thankfully rare, but still does happen. Um, and the treatment is largely supportive. So let's read comments, which means I'm gonna pull up your comments on Disgracebook right now as we're 50 minutes in, we'll do 10 minutes of comments, how's that? Let's pull it up. Uh, all right. I took notes and as a patient advocate, I do think even I can get CME, Chelsea Corbett, who's a supporter, yes. And to remind you guys, the CME, in a couple days, I'll post a link on how to get that for supporters only. So sign up using the link I've given you. It's only $4.99 a month and you get the CME. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I see there's some anti-vaxxers here. Don't worry, I'll go through and ban them later. I can't do it today because today is screen-free Sunday for the dog. Um, Elizabeth Smith, I have Hashimoto's disease. Okay, hold on. Uh, let's read some. Is it possible to contract measles if vaccinated? Denise Daniels, hey, sir, Rodik. That's a lot of names, Denise. Um, yes, it absolutely is. Uh, it is something called modified measles where you have an attenuated version. You usually manage better. You're less contagious. And it is unusual. Most people have lifelong immunity. However, um, there are some who don't, and they tend to be people who have trouble making those antibodies. We don't really understand it, but we understand this. If the whole community is immunized, the virus never has a way to get a foothold because even if it infects these partial responders, it's less contagious. However, if you have 20% of the population who is absolutely unvaccinated, you are going to spread this disease like wildfire because 90% of unvaccinated exposed to measles will get an incubation period, a prodrome, an exanthem, and hopefully a recovery period if they don't have a complication. Let me pull up your comments on the big computer because my iPad has given me grief. It only shows me the last few comments, and I suspect there are some good ones here. Um, why does it say I only have eight comments? That's just not true. Hang on. Give me a second, people. We're going to make this happen. Click for more. There it is. All right, I suspect there's some anti-vaxxers all over this. Um, close the southern U.S. border. Uh, check everyone. Uh, that's not going to work. It is not going to work because you can get, listen, borders are porous no matter what you do, and people are coming on planes from anywhere in the world, and they're upstanding American citizens, and they come back with measles because, as I mentioned, the prodrome... You may, be, you may not even have symptoms. You may have a mild nonspecific fever. You're highly infectious. You're coughing all over the plane. The people aren't vaccinated because they're not doing that anymore. And what happens? You spread it. So you can't blame the border on this. And if you do, you're shunting blame from where it should be, which is our own freaking people are doing this to us. You can blame immigrants for a bunch of stuff. That's all day long. You can do that. Fine. No problem. You blame them for measles. You're just plain wrong. Okay? Because <laughs> the one thing that that developing world wants is our vaccines. Um, that triggers me. So let's see here. So uh, Mexico is known to be more compliant with vaccines, Sandra Oxtoa. That's the thing. 
Only in the U.S. and in Europe, in highly advanced societies, are we advanced enough to, to, to have the Dunning-Kruger effect where we think we know more than we do and we question our authority figures so much that we stop vaccinating and we end up with a pool of at-risk individuals. Now, you're exposed to someone who couldn't get vaccinated or, worse yet, you're a baby or someone with immune compromise who cannot be vaccinated and you're exposed and you get sick. We need that community immunity to protect us. And I would argue, go back and watch the show I did with Paul Offit. It was, he is a fantastic explainer of how and why we do this. And he does it with a lot more empathy and compassion than I do because I get mad, all right? Um, can we build an anti-vaxxer wall, April Peter? Now, I'm down for that. I'm down for that wall. Um, that and a wall against Canada because they're musical terrorists, okay? Justin Bieber, that's an act of war. Alanis Morissette, well, all I really want is you never to sing again. Um, I agree, we need community immunity. June Peach, uh, 20 years ago, my son broke out from head to toe with red bumps and whelps, and it was after his first MMR, the doctor gave Benadryl to help clear it up, Tylenol for the fever until it cleared. I still vaccinated both my boys. What would the treatment be now for a case like my son had? I mean, it's the same thing. You, you, it, you can get these... Um, Mild vaccine reactions, they are vastly better than, and you can, have ad, you can have serious side effects from vaccine. They're very, very rare. What's not, increasingly not rare, is measles coming back. So, you know, the hope is one day we vaccinate so well that we don't need to vaccinate anymore because we've errat, look at smallpox, it's gone. You know, this is theoretically possible. That should be our goal. Uh, Angela Smith, thank you. Bieber is an act of war. You're right. Cause I said, baby, 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 ah. Um, hey, uh, you just used the bare naked ladies in your new video. Uh, says Anna I know they are not musical terrorists. Okay, they are spies. The Americans sent to Canada to elevate their musical game. Okay, this is me in grade nine, baby. Yeah, this is me in grade nine. This is me in grade nine. All right. Sandrox toe up my uh, tighter show. I don't convert after multiple vaccines of measles. So that, that's interesting. And some people do not seroconvert. Like I said, 99% do after the two. Uh, and so again, it's for your sake, Sandra, that we need a community immunity. Um, let's see. Tissues now they're selling with viruses. Kaylee Wadino. Yeah, I saw that. They're selling pre-flued snot rags. If you want a day off work, you can infect yourself with the flu. Okay, first of all, I don't know enough details about it. Second of all, that is the cardinal sign of the end of America. We're just done. Like civilization as we know it is over when you start selling snot rags. It's just, we're finished. I don't really believe that. I think we're too smart to go buying snot rags. And if, if you aren't, that's called Darwinism. Um, if you don't convert, does that mean you for sure aren't immune? Dana Velling. I don't know the answer to that, Dana, because there is a humoral response uh, and there's a cell-mediated response, and I'm not smart enough of an immunologist to answer that question wisely. Um, again, the Dunning-Kruger effect, I know a little, therefore I know everything. If I had Dunning-Kruger, I'd say, well, uh, I wave some hand answer and make something up, but I know what I don't know, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, let's see, uh, people get mad about this stuff. Uh, I can't believe how stupid people are gotten Kathleen George. Ah, it's, it's not even, you know, these are smart people. It's just they're misled by stupid people. They're misled by professional stupid people um, that are activists about this stuff. 
Uh, let's see. There's no complete eradication. There are stores of smallpox for biological warfare. Well, Robin Johnson, that's the thing. I mean, you could eventually destroy those, but the Russians probably have some up their pocket. And so you're going to keep, you want to keep some too, to be able to make a vaccine. I think it might be a good reason to keep it. Um, all right. I think let's see where we're at in terms of time here, because I don't want to exceed an hour or else the CME people get mad. Okay, we have a couple more minutes. Let's read some more comments. He pronounced my last name correctly, says Kaylee Wadino. What can I say? With a name like Demania? Not going to be hard. All right. A couple calls to action here. In a couple days, you'll be able to get CME for this if you're a supporter. So sign up as a supporter now. A couple posts ago on the supporter page on Facebook, which you get access to when you sign up, I told you how to register at Physicians Weekly to get an account that then will host my video. You can then click the video, review any parts you want, take the post test, which will be straightforward if you watched any of this, um, and get your credit, and that credit, you'll be able to get a certificate emailed to you anyway, it's stored there, whatever you want. What a great way to get your learn on while fighting evil, while uh, improving people's health, while teaching the teachers around the country, others, how to recognize and manage measles in a resurgent era. Uh, and I think we are nearly out. I want to thank all the supporters for making this possible. I want to thank my kids and family for letting me broadcast on Screen Free Sunday. I'm going to go back and sit in a hot tub with them because I promised them this, which we've been doing all day, but I wanted to get this out of myself before it made me crazy because the more I read about this stuff happening in, in Washington and Oregon and on the East Coast, ah, I would just hate for a case to be missed and another outbreak occur. All right. We are out. Peace. Actually, let me double check that. Yeah, we're out. One hour. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.